Beautiful. Thank you, Peter, for leading us in our time of worship thus far. And also just wanted to publicly uh, thank as well the, the sound guys. As, uh, as Josh will tell you, I have a weirdly shaped head and I also have a beard. And so uh, the microphone that Chad normally wears doesn't normally fit me too well. So, uh, so the guys, they found a, uh, another microphone for me this morning. So uh, thank you to, uh, to both James and to Josh and to, to Kenny for your service to the Lord in the, in the sound We'll continue our study of God's Word this morning. As you know, we've been going through the, the parables of Christ. That is the series I've been preaching through, the parables of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles with us this morning, please turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Once again, we'll continue Luke chapter 16. And as you turn there, Nia was uh, telling me this week, she was reading this article about the strange things that, that kids seem to believe or, or to, to, to think is, is right. And she had several examples in, in, this, in this article that I found really funny and interesting. One was uh, uh, one of the kids believed that uh, every time lightning in the sky flashed, that was someone just taking a photo. And so every time lightning would be there, he'd stand outside and he'd, he'd smile up at the, up at the skies. Another little kid, he believed that, uh, that pregnancy was caused by overeating. And so he encouraged his mother to eat lots of food so that he could have another baby boy or, or baby girl, baby sister. Finally, uh, one of the examples was uh, one kid believed that uh, when it came to milk, white cows, they made white milk and brown cows, they made chocolate milk. And, uh, and, and that, that's what they believe. Kids believe some, some weird and some strange things because they haven't been informed of, of anything different. And sometimes people think we as, as Christians, us as Christians, we believe some weird and some, some strange and some wacky things. But praise the Lord, we have the scriptures, the holy word of God that gives us absolute truth. Just this past week, I was at work and uh, one of my colleagues, unbelieving colleagues, he, was, he came up and, and uh, as he often does, he was just asking me some questions. He's he's absolute pagan, loves the world, but he thinks my beliefs, he thinks our beliefs as, as Christians are, are, are weird and strange. He's very skeptical of the things that we believe in. He's skeptical about the gospel. He's skeptical about Christ. And of course, there are many arguments that we can, we can make. There are many defenses that we can give. And but because their minds, their minds are clouded and their worldview is unsound, the temptation is there to push their worldview to its inevitable end. It's very easy for us to, to be tempted to push their worldview, hoping that maybe they'll end up despairing of their condition and, and maybe they'll just, they'll just come to the truth. But despite the defenses that we might give, the best thing to do when someone questions the truth is to take them to the Word of God. It's to take them to the Scriptures. To read the Scriptures. To pour over the Scriptures. To seek God in the Scriptures. The Bible itself, the very thing that they doubt, is the very thing to which they must turn in order to have any hope. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes from the Word about Christ. We can make all kinds of defenses. It can be too easy to default to our own way of saying things. What we really need to do is to make sure they know exactly what God says and how He says it and the context in which He says it. 
That is the most important thing. Sad as it is, unbelievers will always twist and manipulate the Scriptures so as to suit their own sinful lifestyles. That is a fundamental lesson that we'll be looking at this morning in today's parable. To toy with the Scriptures is to toy with your eternity. To mess around and manipulate the Scriptures is to mess around with your eternity. That is where we find ourselves this morning in Luke chapter 16 as as Jesus continues to face off with the Pharisees. He continues to rebuke them. They were doing just that. The Pharisees were doing just that. They were manipulating the Scriptures to suit themselves, to suit their own sinful desires. As we know, the, the Pharisees, they are the religious elite of, of Israel, the Jewish nation. They are the leaders of Israel. As we've studied many times before, they were known for toying with the Scriptures. They scorned the truth. They loathed the truth. The Pharisees, they valued above all else the things of earth. They valued the glory of men. They, they valued everything else outside of God all while appearing to be righteous before God, before the people. Reality was that behind the scenes, they hated truth. They didn't want to hear the truth. They toyed around with the truth to bend it to fit to their lifestyle. As is recorded so often in the Gospels for us, Jesus is ever calling them out for it. Why? Because He knew that to toy with the Scriptures is to toy with your eternity. That is the issue we have here before us this morning. That's why Jesus says in verse 17 of of Luke chapter 16, He says, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. In order to best understand this morning's parable of Lazarus and the rich man, we must first look at the context, verses 14 through 18 of chapter 16. Jesus calling out the Pharisees on their sinful twisting of God's Word. As we know, God's Word is unchanging. Every word spoken comes from Him. But you could sooner see the entire universe suddenly go out of existence than to see the smallest mark or letter of God's Word fail. The implication here is to regard or or to treat any part of God's Word as flexible. That's what the Pharisees would do. They would twist the truth when it came to things like money. They would would twist the truth so as to not pay their taxes or to to cheat the Gentiles out of more money. The masters of manipulation of the Scriptures. And all this was so they could control the Jewish people. They were masters of toying with the Scriptures. That's why Jesus uses this example here in verse 18 of, of divorce and marriage. The Pharisees had twisted that teaching on divorce and marriage, so as to divorce someone for something as minor as a wife disobeying her husband's commands. This was a a teaching that they commonly twisted. That is what the Pharisees' lives revolved around, depreciating the law of God, using it to their own advantage, twisting it so they could appear spiritually superior all the while ignoring the commands that didn't suit their lifestyles. I wonder, Jesus says to them over in, over in Mark chapter 7, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, these, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines to the precepts 
of men. Basically, he's saying that the commandments of God, you hold to the traditions of God. You set aside the commandments of God to hold on to your own traditions. How wrong the the Pharisees were in what they were doing. You men, you you imagine that the law is yours to redefine and, and to toy around with the truth. But you would sooner see the whole universe go out of existence than to imagine that the Scriptures is yours to twist. That is why, folks, the next thing Jesus does is tells us this story. Verses 19 through 31. Jesus tells us this story of Lazarus and the rich man to illustrate what happens when you toy with the Scriptures. It's an example of, of someone who toyed with the Scriptures. This story is the exclamation point, if you like, that if you won't believe the Scriptures, you won't believe at all. Please follow along with me as we read verses 19 through 31 of Luke chapter 16. The Word of God says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which are falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus the bad things. But now he is being comforted and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that all who wish to come over from here to you will not be able that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that, they may warn, that he may warn them, so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. This story sends the the clearest possible warning about gaining the world and ignoring what God says about a coming day of reckoning. The fundamental message of this story is what I said earlier, to toy, to mess around with the scriptures is to mess around with your eternity. If you remember just, just previously from, from previous sermons that we've looked at, what a parable actually is, this is very important. A parable is essentially a word picture that demonstrates truth. Para, where we get the word parallel from, means to lay alongside. So a parable is a story laid alongside truth to demonstrate its reality. Parables invariably drive home one singular principle, although many details are interesting. And we see that in this parable this morning, many interesting details, but often it can be too easy to miss the singular point of the parable. 
The main point of the parable is normally fairly simple and straightforward. It's meant to be easily grasped by those who listen. Those who are sincerely interested in knowing and following the principles gained from the parable. Basically, if you're teachable and if you're humble before God, if you have a heart of pliability before God, the principles in a parable become clear. However, he who does not have is the ear. In other words, he who does not have any sincere interest or faith to grasp the lesson, the parable becomes veiled to them. You become blinded to its reality. Matthew 13 says, On that day, Jesus started to speak in parables, in veiled stories, because they did not have the eyes to see. The Pharisees did not have eyes to see, eyes of faith, or ears of pliability. What's different and interesting about this parable, however, is Jesus uses specific names. Notice he calls him Lazarus. And he does so, for, for a very specific purpose, he does so so that the Pharisees couldn't claim that this story doesn't relate to them in any way. He mentions people like Father Abraham, a clear implication that this rich man here is, is Jewish. He recognizes Father Abraham. He's part of Israel's elite. So in the story, the rich man, he is parallel to the Pharisees and how they, they treat the world in the here and now. He also mentions Moses and the prophets, tying the story back to verse 16. And so it seems very pointed towards the Pharisees. There's no denying that this this story was spoken to rebuke them. This is a parable about the heart-stopping shock that comes to those who ignore God's warning about loving this world. It's about unbelief. It's about loving hypocrisy. It's about the heartless selfishness that results from a love of this world. It's very similar to to when Jesus was preaching back in Matthew chapter 7, and he says, many will say to me that on that day, Lord, Lord. You ever thought about that passage? How How can someone get to the grace, the throne of grace, and be shocked, be shocked to be there? You, you might have named my name. You appeared spiritual. You seem to attach yourself to God's people. You might have even quoted God's word prolifically. But he will say on that day, depart from me for I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. With this parable, Jesus shocks and warns all those who would toy with God's word to suit their own selfish desires. The next life for those who do this will be polar opposite to this one. See how this begins to unfold. Let us firstly look at the folly of living your best life now. The folly of living your best life now. Verse 19, there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Start by looking at the the rich man side of the contrast. Firstly, notice that here he, he loves his status. He habitually dressed in these things. This word has the idea that he does it for himself, to himself, with the results coming back on himself. This fashion, he dresses up to look like the wealthy and the important, and he loved it. He loved the status. He loves his reputation. He loved his position in the community and how he was looked upon by others, by the way he dressed. He was in love with his own significance. We all know this is, this is the human plight, right? 
In many ways, we all love to have reputation. But often it isn't that we want a, a good reputation to, to want to cry. Sometimes we just want a, a good reputation because we don't want people to see what's behind the reality of our lives, our weaknesses and our infirmities. It could be all too easy to get into these habits of, of loving self, of loving significance, so much so that we can quite easily act like the unbeliever here in the story. Maybe it's our achievements or, or our bank account or, or where we live or, or what we drive. I know those are rather mundane examples of, of the problem here, but the point is the same. This man habitually makes himself important by looking the part and by dressing the part. And he loved it. Not only did he love the status that it gave him, but he absolutely loved living in the splendor every day. He gloried in lavish excess that came with his luxurious lifestyle. It isn't just about personal comfort. It's about his love of that personal comfort. God gives us all kinds of things that are comforting to us. But clearly, the problem is the idolatry of those things. We take good things in the common grace of God and, and we misuse them. And this guy, he's at the height of glorying in that lavish excess, in his luxurious lifestyle. He loves his ease and he loves his luxury. He loved it because when the resources are in abundance, we attempted to take security in them, right? When resources become abundant to us, we tend to take security in them. We think that our, our resources make us secure in some way. You know that, that feeling that, that you get when an unexpected amount of resource, normally things like money, might come in? It's unexpected and for a moment, suddenly that, that pressure is lifted. That blood rushes to your head. You get this, this bit of excitement, lightheadedness, this windfall that happens that you didn't expect. Why? Because we don't have to care about the things that burdened us just a moment ago. And if that goes on long enough, you will be tempted to find your security in these things. The rich man here, he does not have a care in the world. He, he has this self-justifying lifestyle. He twists the scriptures. He ignores the scriptures that speak of the sufficiency of God. No doubt he knows the scriptures. He has knowledge. But that knowledge is, is twisted into elevating himself above all others. For him, he's, he's living his best life now. He's not, he's not thinking anything beyond this life. He's not thinking about the future. He's not worrying about the future. He has it all. He has money. He has power. He has influence. He has every comfort and convenience that money can possibly buy. Thinking about, about this illustration, some of the, one of the best persons to, to describe this, I, I think, is Solomon. Thinking about when he was the richest king in the world. And he, he, said, he said he tried it all. He spared no expense. He spared no time. He plunged himself deep as anyone could into the things of this world. But we see in Ecclesiastes 12, and Mr. Grant took us through this series a while back, Ecclesiastes 12, when it is all said and done, all that is chasing the wind, it never satisfied. When all is said and done, fear God, keep His commandments. There are so many warnings in Scripture that this man would have had about trusting in the things of this world. Those little parables about gaining the whole world and, and losing your soul. 
those statements about our life being a vapor. We should let go of what we cannot keep in order to gain what we cannot lose. We might say these things because of their straightforward nature, but we don't always give room to glory in God alone. We tend to leave room for just spouting these verses off while at the same time having the things of this world and appearing spiritual with them. The rich man here, he would massage the meaning of Scripture until it flexed enough to allow him to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to be spiritual yet wants to live it up at the same time. By contrast, however, the poor man is mentioned. Verse 20, a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. Well, that's different. Very different. What we note first about the poor man is that he has no earthly hope. In fact, his name here is, is Lazarus. And that's a deliberate naming of a factitious character by the Lord to demonstrate just how hopeless this guy is, this is just how destitute this man is. He's a beggar, and his name means that. His name means God alone is my help. It's a derivative of, of Eliezer, God is my help. All the comforts of the world had abandoned him. He had no earthly hope. He had no personal dignity or, or personal comfort. Notice he was, he was laid at the gate, or, or better translated, he was tossed at the gate, just left there. Covered with sores. His illness is repulsive. His sores, he's got ulcers all over his body. They're, they're open and they're, they're festering and, and they're just disgusting. He's longing to be fed with the crumbs that are falling from the table of the rich man. He has no physical relief. He has no human comfort. Only the, the dogs were there licking his wounds. What a, what a sick picture that is, I don't like it when Nia's dog licks my arm without sores, let alone, let alone a dog licking the sores to keep him clean. This rich man here, he has an opportunity. He sees this man lying outside his gate and he has a golden moment to reach below his own lap of luxury and, and demonstrate what God is like to this man. In fact, because Jesus mentions the prophets later on in reference to the rich man's family, he should have known what the Old Testament said about compassion, about kindness, about reaching out, about, about meeting people's needs. By the time you, you get to the prophet Micah, you have some very pointed words. Micah 6, 6 through 8 says, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What am I going to come and worship God with? What is the right way to approach God in worship? Shall I come to Him with, with burnt offerings and yearly calves, all the sacrifice? Is that what the Lord wants? Does the Lord take delight in a thousand of rams or, or ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? He has told you, O man, what is good. He has told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justly, to love mercy. He has told you what is good, that He requires you to walk humbly before your God. That's what the prophet Micah said. He would have had this example. Jesus makes the point here that Moses and the prophets, he had Moses and the prophets to read and to see what the fruit of the heart of God is like when it captures someone's soul. 
When someone gives their heart to God, it does not end up in a love of this world, in a love of money, in a love of of influence and power and significance. When someone gives their heart to God, conversion changes everything. You're absolutely attached to nothing. The righteous shall live by faith. The Pharisees so completely love this world that their contempt for the truth became obvious in how they treated the people around them. They were cruel, they were unforgiving, they were arrogant, living in gross hypocrisy. How can they they claim to know and to to love God, be so deeply in love with God, when, when they loved all that was esteemed by men on this earth? The story of of that Jesus here depicts here is is the problem. The beggar is dumped at the rich man's gate. The rich man is is living it up, just imagining that his life is the result of how profoundly superior he is to all others. That is the contrast here. Opposite lives on earth, the opposite lives that these two men had, the folly of living your best life now. So that's when when the story turns to the afterlife. Second point, when the story turns to the afterlife, we we see the the shocking destinies beyond the grave. The the focus shifts to our eternal inheritance. Verse 22 says, Now the poor man died and was, was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and he was buried. Even even in this, the contrast is is set forth. Lazarus, he died here in obscurity. There was no fanfare. There was no. uh, The the story indicates that there was no family at his deathbed, no children to comfort him, no sight of of loved ones weeping at the thought of of him being gone. He died in in obscurity here. But notice the rich man. He died and and he was he was buried. He had all the earthly honors. The implication here is that the rich man, he had everything. At the end of his earthly life, he had it all, and the beggar had nothing. The rich man, he would have had the the lavish funeral, the big fanfare, the the family at his deathbed. This man died with, with earthly honors, but notice what happens. The poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom here, this is the the Jewish destination for for heaven or for paradise. This is where the Old Testament saints go. It's a a place of blessing. It's a a place of enjoyment. Abraham is the Old Testament father of believers who, who stood at the head of the Old Covenant. And on the New Covenant, he's the example of faith and being saved by faith, Romans 4, 6 tells us. So embedded in the mindset of the Jewish culture at that time was that disease and poverty were a sign of God's curse on you. You would never be part of the covenant if you were impoverished or a beggar because you were cursed by God. Somehow you were outside of God. The Pharisees and the rich man, they thought, well, because Israel is eating out of my hands, because I have status and, and reputation, I must be blessed by God. I must be one of God's extra loved ones. Those impoverished people out there beyond the gate with sores all over their body, they've, they've been cursed by God. That was the assumption. If your life looked like this beggar, Lazarus could never have possibly been in the fold of God, in God's favor. And yet he was the one being borne up to heaven by the angels. This would have made the Pharisees cringe 
when they heard this? How can, how can that dirty, disgusting man here be carried by the angels? The very mention of Abraham here is highly offensive because it meant that the beggar was in a place of intimate fellowship with God. It meant that the beggar, Lazarus, he had the dignity and honor of eternal things. The heavenly, the, the honor of God, the dignity of being a child of God. The eternal blessings of Abraham, the father of God's people. It meant that this beggar had faith and trust in his God, in the Messiah, and in forgiveness through God. That is what is meant when Jesus said he's born by the angels. It's a stunning, a shocking reversal. As one commentator says, this is an assault on the Pharisees' theological assumptions. The other half of the shocking reversal, the rich man died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in the place of blessing. The rich guy, he's in Hades. Hades, of course, is is most closely associated with the Old Testament term of of Sheol when it's sometimes translated grave or or hell or or the depths or or the pit. Basically, it's the place of the dead. It's generally associated with with the afterlife of an unbeliever. The word here speaks of the opposite of being in the eternal blessings of Abraham's bosom. And we see here that, that torment is associated with this place. So clearly he's talking about judgment. He's talking about hell and about judgment. This is where this man went. Opposite lives on earth, shocking destinies beyond the grave. This man is in this place where unbelievers go and he's in torment. That word there means agony, pain, torture. That is exactly what the Bible teaches about the reality that is hell. Some verses to to look through. This This is all through the scriptures. Deuteronomy 32, all the way back in the Old Testament, verse 22. A fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of the depths below. Job 10, for those who reject him, there will be darkness. Job 14, those in the grave do do not know what's taking place on earth. Job 21, it is falsehood to believe that wicked will escape God's just wrath by eternal punishment. Psalm 94, the Lord of vengeance, his righteousness rises up, O judge of the earth. Pay back to the crowd what they deserve. Isaiah 33, sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who can dwell with an everlasting burning? Isaiah 64, and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their work will not die, nor their fire be quenched. They will be loathsome to all mankind. That is what the scriptures teach about the reality that is hell. And so what a reversal we have here. What a a shock reversal. You love your life here. You love the things of this earth. You lose your soul. You toy with the scriptures, you justify your lifestyle, you toy with your eternity. And an interesting thing unfolds here. He lifts his eyes from being in torment and he sees Abraham far away and Lazarus in that that place of blessing. He cries out, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in, in water and cool my tongue. I'm in agony. The point here is, isn't the imagery of whether or not one finger with one drop of water could relieve those in hell. I think Spurgeon 
Chad said yesterday, Spurgeon preached a whole sermon on this voice, on this one verse. The point here is that there is no relief. In hell, there is no relief. You're in agony. He wants relief down there, but there is no relief. Verse 25, Abraham says, Child, remember during your life, during your earthly life, you received your good things. What does Abraham mean by that? Is it, is it a, a sinful thing to have good things? Is it sinful to enjoy good things? No, it's not a sin to have. Clearly, it's not a sin. Abraham himself was a wealthy man. It's not a sin to have good things. His point here is that in your lifetime, you received good things. You brought them into your life as the pinnacle. They were the end of you. It was all you concerned yourself about. You loved it rather than you loved God. You served money rather than you serving the Creator. You loved it and ignored what the Scriptures said about trusting in it. Lazarus, he's being, he's being comforted here. Why? Because he didn't trust in those things. He didn't love the world. He was even willing to have a few scraps off the table to relieve hunger pains, never bitter at his God for his earthly circumstances. Because like a a flower in grass, that stuff is here today and gone tomorrow. He never trusted in it. Basically, Lazarus says, Lord, do with my life what you choose. I know that you're on your throne. I serve you. You don't owe me a trouble-free life. You don't owe me a disease-free life. You don't owe me a big paycheck, security on the financial end. You owe me nothing. In fact, I owe you everything. I can pay nothing that would satisfy your own righteousness. I need you, God. Do with me what you want. How easy it is to get attached to the things of this world and to find security in them. We must not trust in these things. How do, we, how do we know if we are trusting in the things of this world? A good question to ask often is, will you sin to get something or will you sin in order to hold on to something? That's a good check. Ask yourself that question. If that's the case, then, then it's idolatry. Let it go. Remove it from your life. In doing so, If you are to hold on to the things of this world, you are holding on and and wrestling with the potential of toying with your eternity. You say, well, I'm saved. My eternity is secure. And if that's the case, then you're toying with your usefulness to the Lord. You're not going to be as useful as you could be because that stuff in your life, your worldly possessions are crowding out your life. You're holding on to things that do not matter. You're concerned and and burdened and and anxious and worrying about these things that do not belong to you. The unforeseen reversal is explained here. You loved your good things. Lazarus, he had all the bad things and he's been comforted. You're in agony. Verse 26. Notice, it's unfixable. It's unreversible. It is what it is because of what happened in your heart on earth. Besides all this... There is a great chasm fix between us and you. There's the problem. This cannot be reversed. It's an uncrossable chasm. You toyed with the Scriptures. You toyed with your eternity. It's an eternal, permanent condition now. 
You played around with it. You bent the truth to justify your own actions. You wanted to have your cake and you wanted to eat it too. You wanted religion and spirituality and you wanted to love the things of this world. You wanted both. I don't care what it says. Do not find your security in anything of this world. It's pleasures, it's wealth, it's, it's acceptance, it's cultural acceptance, it's ideologies. Do not trust the things of this world. Go back to the Scriptures. Listen to what God says. Or the reversal here may shock you. Obviously, we're all churchgoers here, but do we know Christ by faith and faith alone? Have we repented of our sins and given our heart to Him? Is there manifest truth that your heart is inclined to? We might love the truth, but, and we don't often love it as much as we should, but, but do we love it? Do we love the truth of God's Word? Is there frustration and, and agony before God over how often we love the things of this world? If you're here this morning and you have a, a spiritual pretense, just deep down you would never let go of the things of this world before the Lord, there is going to be an unforeseen reversal. You are going to be shocked when this life is over. If you're a believer, make yourself useful, not trusting in the things of this world, not enjoying the things of this world before your enjoyment of God our King and Saviour. Third and finally, as we begin to wrap up, Looking at the final response, verse 27 through 31. I'll just read those verses again. He said, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. There's so much rich truths in these verses alone, and we don't have a lot of time remaining, but, but Jesus' response here through this parable is, is very simple. If you toy with the Scriptures, you toy with eternity. You mess with the message, you mess with eternity. You want to make the Scriptures fit around your sinful lifestyle so that you can enjoy your life now. Be prepared for a nasty shock in eternity. Notice what this rich man does here. He, he basically is asking for a miracle so as to, to save his, his family from the same fate. You see his, his foolishness once again. No miracle can save. Raise Lazarus. That's what, that's what the rich man is asking for, right? My family know him. He was the one that sat at the gate. Warn them. Raise him up. Perform a miracle only if they could just see someone like Lazarus. Then they would be convinced. This one, this one made me laugh because Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead. And for 2,000 years, he's been hated by generations. How can they be convinced by a man raising from the dead? Nobody ever got saved by a miracle. It's the message, the true message that saves the only way to keep people from hell is to expose them to the saving message of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. To change the message in favor of a method is ridiculous. 
Yes, we are to use every possible method to proclaim the true message, but the message is what saves. Nothing, nothing else will save. Not even if someone rises from the dead. Before the cross, it was believing in the true God, Yahweh. Believing in repentance. Believing in God's sovereign grace and salvation. Believing in forgiveness. Believing in substitution. Believing in forsaking sin and loving God's word. Believing in a future Messiah. The Old Testament saints had all this and more through the writings of Moses and the prophets. They were without excuse. After the cross, we have the Messiah, we have the Lamb of God, His own Son, the perfect substitution. We've been bought back at a price. We've been declared righteous, robed in Christ's own righteousness. And now the Spirit of God works in us, sanctifies us to be useful for the Lord, so as to live for the glory of God. That's the message that saves. The Old Testament or New Testament, it doesn't matter. The righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2.4, quoted numerous times in the New Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. When we become lovers of this world, satisfied with this world, we show a complete lack of faith. In this life, we are to be of, we are to be in the world, but we are not to be of the world. We toy with the scriptures to justify our own sin, we toy with our eternity. May we be all those who live for Christ, not enjoying our best life now, not having security in the things of this earth, but looking forward in hope to our best life yet to come. Let's pray. Our dearest Lord and Heavenly Father, oh, how how easy it is for us to fall short. But Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Lord, that indeed it, it draws us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Lord, help us. Help us to be those who, who love you, who, who do not love the things of this world. Put them aside. May we be those who desire to, to walk uprightly before you, honoring you with all that we have and all that we do. Lord, we, we long to be with you. Lead us on to higher ground. We pray these things in your precious name now. Amen. Thank you, Peter.